Welcome to DVC. I hope you're doing well this morning. Fathers, I just want to say happy Father's Day. I'm glad that you're here, and uh, I hope today is, has been a good morning for you so far, and that the rest of your day will be as well. I hope you get to put your feet up or do whatever it is that you want to do. But I'm glad that you made uh, church a priority for yourself and also for those uh, that you have the opportunity to lead. I couldn't help but think of I remember watching that video, the, the funny video right before Karen got up, and I was like, how did they picture my life? I'm like, I, I, I perfected all of those dance moves at home. Um, at, I remember at Difference Makers, I had to do a certain, it wasn't this, yeah, it was last this past year, I had to do like dance moves, or maybe it was a CG event, I don't know, um, the end of year party, but I had to do the sprinkler, that thing. And I just want you to know, I perfected that at home with my kids way before I did it here. So that wasn't my first time. I just thought that was so funny. I was like, man, that is so my life. Um, and just trying to make my kids laugh for the most part. Sometimes they probably cry privately, too, for the same things. But I just try and make them laugh. Um, and I fail in that. But anyway, so I am glad you're here. And, and, and it is lighthearted. But I, I think Father's Day is a great day for us to come together and to honor our fathers. And I would say this. It's pretty obvious uh, for us, maybe that our, our fathers weren't the perfect example, right? There was only one Jesus and none of our fathers were perfect. But how about today that you call your, your dad, your father, whoever it was that fathered you, just call him and say thank you for maybe the one thing that they gave you. Uh, and maybe even not even thinking about the negative side of it, but just what's the one thing you gave me and say thanks for that. And then also just uh, something else that Karen had said earlier that really stuck with me. Uh, many times we have spiritual mothers or fathers, and they may not even consider themselves that. So if you consider someone a spiritual father or mother, for that, for that matter, why don't you just encourage them to say, thank you for being my spiritual father and helping me along in the faith. Without you, I don't, you know, I would be lost without you. Those types of things, whatever it is, that, that it, whoever it is that shaped your story, just reaffirm those people because they probably don't even know the impact that they've had on you. They're just living life. So anyway, uh, today we are, uh, I'm actually going to preach a sermon eventually. Um, so here is, here is the sermon. We're actually in our third week of a series called Miracles. And we have only one more week left of this. And what we've looked at, and the reason why we've camped out on this, this, this theme of faith over the last several months, and certainly in this series, is we're looking at what Jesus did so that we can be reminded of what Jesus still does. Because Life sometimes just becomes so mundane. We go through the motions. We're so busy living our lives and cooking meals and cleaning and working and working on the car and the house and cutting the grass and raising the kids and doing chores or, you know, doing all the things that we do. And sometimes what we do is we just contend to put our faith on the back burner of our life. And what I hope to have done, or at least to help you to do, is to take your faith and put it on the front burner of your life. So it's, it's front and center for you instead of just thinking it's something that you do on Sundays, but it's something that we're supposed to live out. And as, even as we do so imperfectly, imperfectly rather, but we have the grace of God leading us. So I know that if I were to ask you, and I'm going to ask you this question, who believes that Jesus still does miracles? And I've asked you this already during this series. Could you raise your hand if you say, I believe? Okay, 
That's great. If you didn't have your hand up, that's fine. Maybe you don't believe that he does miracles or maybe you just asleep and didn't want to put your hand up at the end because make you look like you weren't paying attention. I get it, however it is for you. But even if you don't believe that Jesus still does miracles, my hope is that after the end of this talk, that something would trigger in you, trigger beyond yourself to start believing maybe for the first time or believing again that Jesus still does miracles. You see, we as Christians, we believe that Jesus still does miracles. What he did in the scriptures was incredible, but yet he's still doing these things today. He's still doing them in different parts of the world. And yet maybe in our part of the world, it seems like God is is so small. But trust me, God is much bigger than what you think. And what he does is a lot more uh, is a lot more obvious around the world, even though our our lens of faith can become so small. So why is it that we don't see more miracles today if we do believe it? I've asked this question before, and I'll answer it maybe in a different way. I believe that one of the reasons why we don't see miracles today is because fear has replaced faith. We've become a fearful people, just a people consumed with fear. We have social media and news outlets, and we have one side telling us something and the other side telling us something, and we know that neither one of them is telling the the, the total truth, so what's the truth? So we're the fearful middle, at least we think we're in the middle most of the time. Uh, you know, all the dangers with kids. Should I vaccinate my kids? Should I not vaccinate my kids? So then you're like, well, if my kids get sick and I haven't vaccinated, then I'm going to look, you know, like a bad parent. So so you're fearful, like if I do it and then people say that I shouldn't do it or if I should do it or then at work, it's like we're just become, maybe you're, you have an unstable work environment to where you're like, "Ah, I'm going to work on Monday. I hope I have a job at lunchtime. I mean, there's a lot of things, and there's, that's only three examples of what I could give for hundreds of examples for us to be people of fear. And I believe that this fear has replaced our faith. I love what D.A. Carson, he's a theologian, he said this, and I believe this really helps us to understand the purpose of miracles incredibly well. Jesus' miracles, what he says, Jesus' miracles are never simply naked displays of power or neat tricks to impress the, the masses. So they're never just as somebody would say, wow. Wow, there was always something beyond, there was, a, there was a what beyond the wow. He says, but there were signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to, to the deeper realities that could not be perceived with the eyes of faith. See, we have to have eyes of faith to be able to understand and spiritually see that, that a miracle is possible or that, that it was possible or even still is possible today. But Jesus' purpose for the miracles wasn't to just wow people. He could have wowed them in a bunch of other ways. There were people in, in his day doing false miracles. There were people who were doing false miracles before Jesus was even uh, on the earth stage. I mean, all these times, there were times to give a wow, but it wasn't just the wow, it was for the what. He, there was this what that he was trying to develop in people. It was the, the wow, I'm going to show this miracle, and just the, the climax miracle is the resurrection that he did publicly, that it would be what would happen after this movement called Christianity, and that the people, part of this movement, they would be swept away, and they would live by what? Faith, and not what? Fear. That they would be people of faith. That this resurrection event that was, that was told about for centuries and centuries and centuries. That the, that the resurrection only confirmed what God was saying in His Word prior to that. That we should be people of faith and believe God and to take Him at His Word. Mark Batterson, 
He said this interesting thing. He says, half of the spiritual growth is learning what we didn't know, and the other half is unlearning what we do know. So half of it is maybe you coming into a session like this or a community group or Bible study, a book study, you know, something. Maybe it's just your, your Moses and Joshua relationship and, and you're wowed with the scripture. Like there's something there. God just shows you something and you're like, oh, my goodness, I never even knew this. And you learn something new. But also, I believe that, that Batterson is totally right, that half of spiritual growth is unlearning what we do know. Because I think what we have learned along the way is to, to see our faith as something that is our duty and our obligation instead of a calling. We've settled for a duty or, or an obligation or maybe rule keeping because if we do that, we can control it. We can control our duty and our obligation. We can control rulemaking. As long as I follow the rules, everything's fine. The problem is you will not live spiritually alive. So we need to unlearn what we do know. And the rules and the duty and the obligation, those things become a replacement for living by faith. And, now here's a, you already know this, or I'm going to tell you something you already know, because you guys are smart. Many of you already get this. When your control fails you, it brings about fear. So fear, when you sense fear, and I'm not talking about, you know, you have somebody barges into your house with a gun in their hand, we all get scared. I'm not talking about that. Like even the baddest person would be like, no, I'm going to grow, you're going to be scared. You're going to, I mean, you're going to be that person, irregardless, okay? That's just going to happen. Don't puff it up too much. But what, we, what, what most of us may not know intellectually, but we've experienced personally is this. When we try to control something, and then when that control fails, we fear it. And that fear is a reminder. I believe that that fear is a reminder to us that our control is failing. Because anytime you try and control your kids... You're like, you try and control, try and control, try and control. Then ultimately, they get a little bit older, and then all that you realize that they, they have, that those boundaries that you put up are really artificial because they get old enough, and they move outside of your house, and then you fear who your kids could become. Or if you try to control somebody in, in, a, in a certain relationship, and then they get beyond that, you start to fear them, them leaving. So then what people sadly do is they double down on the control only for it to fail and push the person farther away. Ever had a, a controlling friend? And they wanted you when they wanted you? It's because fear, they were drawing to you and they're trying to manipulate you because that was fear. They feared you leaving, so they had to manipulate you to come back. This happens not just in friendships, not just in family, it just, generally it just happens in our faith. So to walk in faith, it requires us or requires, excuse me, a rewiring of the human brain. It, it, it requires a renewing of the mind. This is the reason why that I, I give these, this bit of instruction all the time. And you've heard it. If you grew up in church, you've heard this over and over and over again. And it was true every single time. The rewiring of your, of your brain, the renewing of your mind, if we'll call it that, to use the scriptural sense, the two primary means that God does this is through prayer, and the other one is through reading His Word, consuming His Word, meditating on His Word. Apart from those two things, you will not have a renewed mind. You will not. 
You need to add some other things in there, some other secondary things. But the two primary means are what I just told you. Prayer, your own communication with God, and also being in the Word of God yourself. This is what will help us to walk in faith. And this is what God's uh, methods are, spiritually speaking, to help us to live with a renewed mind. To walk in faith also requires something else. It requires us to face our fears and eventually conquer them. Now, to conquer them, don't be put off so far. Some of you, you've been here long enough. Are you saying, well, I can just run into this myself? No, 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 no. Because if you run in without God, you're going to seek to control it, and then you're going to fear it. Fear is going to consume you when you realize that you can't control it. Then you're going to be right back to where we are. And I'm not going to preach this message for a long time, so just pay attention now, right? Like, to walk in faith requires us to face our fears and let God conquer them. Because when we walk in faith, we're walking with the knowledge. As Christians, we're, we believe that we're walking and not just in the knowledge, but also with the Holy Spirit leading us and leading our words, guiding our steps, guiding our desires. And we, we're not going to win over these fears by simply ignoring them. You're never going to win over your fears of, if you have fear of a crowd by staying at home. You're never going to win over the, the fears that come with being an extreme introvert by churching at home with a computer screen. The only way you're going to have those things overcome is by being part of the, of the body of Christ to, for God to show you that you can even trust Him in that. That He wants you here and He wants you as a part of the body. So the only way that we're going to overcome this is A, to have a rewiring of the human brain that comes through the renewal of the mind but also by facing our fears and not running away from them. So we're going to have fears of, of uncertainty. This comes with faith. It's, it's uncertain to you, but it's certain to God. You tracking with that so far? It, the, where this may lead you as you walk by faith, it's uncertain to you, but it's not uncertain to God. Ultimately, it's going to come with risk because you're going to risk something if it's beyond your control. Everything beyond your control has some measure of risk. And ultimately, there's also going to be pressing into the fear of failure. I told this in the 915, and it was just what God prompted. It was nowhere in my notes, or I didn't even think about this. But, and I certainly don't want to use myself as a case study for walking by faith, because I'm not the perfect example of this. I'm not. If you only knew me like Jesus knew me, you would, you know, you would see a different me. But when you stand on a stage like this, there's this, this false portrayal that's cast upon the person who's teaching. But I, I will tell you this, and I believe that you would have never probably known my name if Marla and, I, Marla and I didn't step into the place of uncertainty, that we didn't step into a place of risk, and we didn't step into a place where we, we pressed into even to a fear of failure. Because prior to public ministry, doing what we do now, professional ministry, whatever you want to call it. Prior to this, I had a really good job. I had experience. I had an education. Uh, we, we were doing fine. We had a house by the lake. It was a dream situation. We had cars. We had a half acre. This is, it was the place in town where people wanted to be. Like things were going well. We had to, to step out in faith just to be able to do what it is that we're doing. And, and I was stepping out of something that I had experienced, stepping out of uh, something I had an understanding and I had an education. 
And I had to step into faith. And I had to leave all of those things behind as, I, as we, not just me, we stepped out in faith, trusting that God was going to meet us and that our faith, ultimately our faith in Christ, was going to lead us past any risk point, any uncertainty, and any fear of failure. This is actually what we see in Luke 5. This is a passage we're going to be in. And in Luke 5, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11, and this is what we're going to see. We're going to see this individual who I believe was comfortable in his work. As a matter of fact, it wasn't just him who was comfortable in his work. He had some business partners. They had a fishing business. Peter and Andrew and James and John were fishing buddies, and they, were, they, were, they each had boats, and they would come together, and they had this little business. And it's what they did, and they were comfortable in it, and they had experience. We don't know how old they are in this, but they already have a business, so they certainly, you know, they hadn't starved to death, so they knew what they were doing to a certain degree where they're feeding themselves. So we'll just say that they had some experience and wisdom in fishing. And we're actually going to see this, this interaction that they are, I believe they're comfortable. Uh, this is believed to be the third interaction that's very similar to what we're going to read together. So this is the third interaction where they're out fishing or they're by the lake and all this transpires by a place called the Lake of Gennesaret. Maybe you haven't heard of that, but you've heard of, uh, of the, the phrase or the, the term, the Sea of Galilee. It's the same place. So they're, they're comfortable and they're fishermen. This is where they were. And Jesus uh, is, has this following. He's a rabbi. So he has this following of people who, who just want to hear his teachings. And now, they, uh, now the, the fishing partners, the, the day of fishing's over. It's the morning. They fished at night. It's morning time. So now they're up, and you're going to see that he's washing his nets, which means they're done. If you don't wash the nets, they get rotten. So they're washing the nets, cleaning stuff up for the day. And now Jesus just comes up, and he asks Peter this favor. But let me back up just for a second. If you're kind of stuck in your Bible reading, and you're like, I just, you know, I don't know where to start. The Gospel of Luke would be a great place. And there's a great storyline even behind this that you typically uh, maybe wouldn't even hear in a sermon even like this. Luke was a medical doctor who God called upon. I believe that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write a gospel account of Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection. He himself was not an early disciple of Jesus. So he was a medical doctor that God had inspired him, so he had left his profession to then go through and write this biographical account of all that Jesus had done. And another layer here that's really neat, there was this guy by the name of Theophilus. That is a great name, by the way, Theophilus. Theophilus, you don't know a whole lot about him other than, than in Luke's writing, and Luke wrote both Luke and Acts, so it's kind of like part one, part two. Theophilus is the one who funded Luke's efforts. So you don't know a whole lot about him. Maybe he himself was a wealthy business owner and he couldn't get away from his work and he didn't do the research himself. But yet he used his resources to expand the kingdom of God and helped Luke to spend the time that it needed to get this close examination of all that Jesus, or excuse me, not all that Jesus had done, but, but the high points of what Jesus had done in his ministry. So Theophilus and now Luke. Let's go into verse 5, and let's see exactly what I was talking about a minute ago. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen. 
who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon. This is Simon Peter, by the way. And asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. So this is neat. There's a crowd of people. It's by the shore. Jesus has this idea. He says, hey, uh, Simon, you guys are done fishing. You're washing the nets and stuff. You've got all this stuff going on. You're done. Can I just use your boat? And Jesus is up to so much more than this. But can I just use your boat right now to teach these people because they're all around me? And I bet the, the vantage point probably wasn't optimal. So he says, if I get out on this boat, then they just out a little bit, then they'd be able to hear him and they'd be able to see Jesus. Of which, we'll see how it continues out. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water, and he let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, notice he says master and not rabbi. Rabbi means teacher, but master is a word that's used when somebody is submitting to another's authority. So he doesn't say rabbi, even though he is the rabbi, and now there's all these people waiting for the rabbi to teach these these great interpretations of the Old Testament. But instead, what Peter says, he calls him master, showing that he is operating under the authority of Jesus. Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break, so they signaled the partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, from now on you will catch men. So they pulled their nets up on shore and left everything and followed him. So now the, the story, now you know how the whole story plays out. Let's go back into the story to see some uh, necessary details. In verse 5, again, notice that Simon answered by saying, Master, this is going to become very, very important, ultimately in Peter's life, because he wasn't the perfect disciple, but he was the one who Jesus would use to be the leader in the early church. So now he says, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. So now fishermen uh, in the Sea of Galilee, you caught fish at night in shallow water, but now Jesus is wanting them to go totally against the grain of their experience and understanding. Because what does Jesus say? Let's continue reading. Jesus told him to go out a little from shore in verse 3. And he asks Peter, he says, to put out a little from shore. So he says, instead, we're going to go into deep water. Totally would not have made sense to Peter's understanding and experience. But that's when God works best. God, I think that God works best. I believe that God works best when, when we get outside of our, of our little bit of understanding and our little bit of experience because in our understanding and in our experience tends to be people who try and control outcomes. And when we try and control outcomes, we can just so sadly even try and manipulate God as if that's even possible. 
But what we can do is we can limit our faith in such a way and we can put our, our faith into such a small container that it almost doesn't even exist. It certainly isn't potent, isn't strong. I'll even say it this way. When Peter was asked to go contrary to his, his experience and his understanding about fishing, he submitted to Jesus' authority, as we already talked about, because he said master and not the word what? Rabbi. So now he's saying master, meaning Lord. When Peter obeyed, I, this is my word, or my words, I believe it was in that moment that, that Peter flexed a faith muscle. That he flexed a faith muscle. Interesting thing about muscles is this. If you stop using muscles, your bone, your, 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 ultimately your bones too, but your muscles will atrophy in such a way that you will absolutely lose strength. If anyone has ever gone to the gym consistently and then you take a week, week of vacation and you don't go to the gym and then you try and go back to the gym, you feel like you've never been to the gym. It's the same thing. It's because of atrophy. Your body would just lose that conditioning. Your faith does the same thing. If we're not exercising our faith, if you're not flexing a faith muscle, it too will atrophy. I'll say it like this. The less that we flex our faith muscle, the more apathetic our faith will be and the more disconnected we will be from our real purpose. This is just fact. This is just truth. The less that we, that we flex our faith muscle, the more apathetic our faith will be. And the more disconnected we will become from our real purpose. And if you are a Christian who's lived your life by rules or duty or obligations, this is most likely where you already are. Because in rules and duty and obligation, nobody's flexing a faith muscle. You don't need to, because all you're told is, if I just follow the rules, if I just commit to this way, I'm going to be fine. And at no point did Jesus say, or, or then, you know, with, in, in James, when, in James' writing, he said that, that faith should be in conjunction with what? Works. Not just duty, not just obligation, but works, works of service, committing to him, so that our life, and in that that working out and living a life of, of service to God and connection with God is where we find our purpose for life in the first place. So the less we flex our faith muscle, the more apathetic our faith will be and the more disconnected we will be from our real purpose. So again, why don't we see more miracles today? I also believe it's because we've become comfortable and familiar. We've become comfortable. And this phrase, I'm, I'm going to say the first two words and then I want you to tell me the last one because I know many of, of, of us have heard this. This phrase, familiarity breeds, what's the next word? Contempt. And that is so true. The way it was defined, to help you in case you've never heard the phrase, is if you know someone very well or you experience something a lot, you tend to stop respecting them. So if you know some re someone very well or if you experience something a lot, it's the same experience, over and over and over, you tend to stop respecting them. I know this on a few different levels. I know this because in, in, in the past, 
Um, I've seen people come into the church, into this church, and they're, they're excited. They come in, they love the teaching and the, the music and the kids' activities and the student activities and the camps and the weekend getaways, and they love the, the Bible studies, the book study. They love everything about it. But then after a while, they just it becomes something that they experience. And, and I ultimately believe it's because they're not living by faith but yet you come into a place even like this and I see people are just fired up and I've been here and I'm excited, I'm excited, yes. And after a while, you tend to just start noticing other things that are wrong and, and you're not listening to the music anymore. Then it's all a matter of, well, they didn't play my favorite song today or, or oh my goodness, he didn't make me laugh today or maybe he made me feel something today or, or yeah, my ki- the kids' activity, you know, well, you know, little Billy fell down and busted his knee Why well, I told you this church wasn't perfect. Good grief. Ask the pastor. He'll tell you that. Church is not perfect. We're flawed people, every single one of us. And yet, familiarity breeds, what was the next word? Tell me. Contempt. Even in, 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 in church circles, you come in and it becomes so familiar to you. And if you're not exercising your faith, instead of when you come into this place, you will find yourself being a consumer of the church culture instead of being a contributor to the kingdom of God. And if you are a consumer of the church culture, all of a sudden, oh, I don't have this place to serve anymore. Or my kids don't have this anymore. We, oh, I can't believe the kids ministry, they ran out of goldfish. Don't they know my kids eat goldfish on Sundays? That's their snack. I don't even send a snack because there's goldfish. You think that, you think that that's absurd. Trust me. I was a kids pastor for five years. That was hot off the presses. That's real. That's how petty, petty even church people can be. It's because familiarity breeds contempt. How else do I know this? And some of you may know this, and some of you have to take my word for it. There's this thing in, in marital relationships. It's called the seven-year, what's the next word? Itch. That's real. I've counseled way too many people who are married people in the span of seven to ten years where they get really comfortable with their spouse and they stop pursuing their spouse. And they become so familiar and they stop respecting them. Instead, they only view things by what they can get instead of what they're supposed to give in the relationship. And then all of a sudden, all you can start to see and people get consumed with is looking at the flaws of the other person. And the flaws and the flaws and the flaws and, all, and then all of a sudden it's an all-out war. And at best, they come and they, and they get some counseling or some help from a community group or something like that. But at worst, th- their marriage is gone. And then they find themselves in a very similar cycle. They just hit the reset button. Only if they don't have those issues in their heart worked out, the same issue is going to cycle right back in seven years. Trust me on that. That's a real thing. Familiarity breeds contempt. Now with more of a lighthearted way of explaining. Two are, two are really heavy. Some of you can connect with this. Some of you not yet. Some of you will be parents one day, and I'm just letting you know what it's going to be like for you. Uh, when you buy a car, you buy, you buy a car and it has that new car smell, you just love it. I mean, it's great. You wash that car all the time, inside, outside. It looks, it's impeccable. You have the car for a little while and maybe you have, you know, a youngster and, uh, and, and they're riding along. You're, you're running around trying to do the whole parenting thing and Maybe they're of the age where they can hold the bottle themselves, and you're like, yes, this is great. We're at a place of freedom. And then they chuck the bottle out of their hand and outside of the car seat onto the seat. And now that, uh, that, that bottle now is leaking all over your new car seat. And now 
you should have bought the leather, but you didn't. You couldn't afford it. That package was just too much for you. And now your whole seat has absorbed this. And now it has a life of its own. I think you know what I mean. And then they get a little bit older. And then you go to McDonald's because you have kids and you're running around and you're busy. And you get them a happy meal and, and everything, everything's great. But then you, you know, not only add to your car the, the smell, which is disgusting of formula, by the way. Uh, it is vile. It really is. And especially after it's in upholstery. I know this for a fact. Um, it's not only disgusting, but then you get past that. And now you get into the French fry stage where you get a happy meal. And then all of a sudden your brand new car just has like things growing on. I don't even know what a French fry is. Uh, is it fruit, vegetable? I don't. Other? It's an other. Uh, and, then, and then you have a little French fry that's now up under the seat. And now it's growing things and it like has a zip code of its own and it's all disgusting and then after a while it's skittles and you know it's everything and it's just consuming all the while you you tend to look at your vehicle differently than what you did originally and you're not washing it as much because familiarity breeds contempt you're so used to it you're used to the experience that you kind of take it for granted and familiarity breeds contempt also and it leads us as people of faith if we're not flexing a faith muscle and if we're people consumed with fear what we're or if people who are living by the duty obligation or rules what we will then fall back into this familiarity breeds contempt and we will leave a life of faith we'll leave it we'll be disconnected from it and that's not god's best from us and ultimately a life of faith and i'm going to introduce a new idea a life of faith, I want to, to give an illustration of this triangle. You most likely will see this triangle again. A life of faith it can be summed up into what you see on the screen right now. This would be uh, something that, that needs to really take root in us. And I'll break it down in, in this way. The up is living in relationship with God. This is prayer. The up is when you come into this place and we sing songs of praise and cel we're celebrating and singing uh, songs of worship and adoration back to God. We come into this place, that's the up. And I would say, we do this pretty well. I like, this is, this is an amazing place to worship. When you guys are locked in, you're locked into the Spirit of God, this place is like, spiritually speaking, it's rocking. I'm not talking about too loud. I'm saying just the Spirit is just like busting us at the seams, and it's amazing. Uh, I would also say the end part. Now, this is, th this is uh, a relationship with God. Now, a relationship with God is not just shaped personally. It's also shaped relationally in family. That's the reason why when somebody commits their life to Jesus, it isn't a personal walk with Jesus. I wish personal was never even in... I, I, really, I really wish that word was never placed in that phrase. It, a walk with God is always supposed to be communal. Always. Always. And, and even baptism, which we're going to celebrate in just a little while, is a public profession, a public acknowledgement of a private personal faith. That's what it is, to keep it public, public, public. So the N is, uh, is your, your walk with God. This is developing in, just in relationship with others and experience God's power in your life. Now the out, I think that the up and in, I think we do pretty well. We're, uh, we're not batting a thousand, but I think we're doing pretty well. It's the out is the one that we struggle with, if I'm honest, as your pastor. I, I believe this is the one we struggle with because the out is living on mission. And I think when it comes to faith, 
The reason why we don't press into the miracles of God is because we're not living on mission for God. Instead, maybe in some ways, and I'm not trying to be overcritical or harsh, but you trust me, listen to my heart in this. But I believe it's because to some degree we have only put our faith uh, on uh, into a certain address that happens to be 427 Airport Road. Instead of living by faith and living on mission for Jesus, sharing Jesus with our co-workers, sharing Jesus with our extended family and our immediate family, instead of living on, mesh, on mission, advancing the kingdom of God in our social spheres, I think when we do those things, we will go back to God, that we will understand we need more of God. That is the out. And again, if I'm honest, that's the one we need to work on as a church. That's, that's the one that we are, we are severely deficient, is the out. We get the gathering really well. And I think to some degree, the up, we're doing pretty well too. But it's the out, it's the living on mission that I think we've missed. And I think that, the, that familiarity breeding contempt has been a contributor because we've got complacent and we've come into the space over and over and over or gotten comfortable with the family of God, but we've missed living on mission for Jesus. And that's what we're supposed to do. When a person goes out and they experience his faith in action, the greater their need for God, and this is what happens. Their faith is challenged, reawakened, and rejuvenated. When a person goes out and, they exerc- and the person exercises faith in action, what will happen inside of them is they get in situations they cannot control and they ask God and they cry out to God and they pray to God and they're seeking God and they're saying, I am walking by faith, not by sight, God. I'm trusting you are my master, just like what Peter said in this passage. You are my master. You're my Lord. I don't know. I'm trusting you to bring me beyond my, my experience, my wisdom, and my understanding standing and I need what you got I need what you have on promise for me Jesus and when a person does that and they live on mission and they exercise faith in action their faith will be challenged it'll just happen their faith will be reawakened and it'll be rejuvenated and on the other hand if somebody's not exercising faith in action and they're not doing the out, if they're not living on mission, your faith will become brittle, fragile, and worthless. It'll just become fragile and brittle, and after a while, you will lose purpose. That's probably better said. Because if you have true faith, true faith, even though maybe you've walked you know, been walking in a direction that's not honoring God, but if you are indeed a follower of Jesus, a born-again follower of Jesus, the faith that God has given you has an incredible amount of worth. So I'll retract what I said a moment ago and say you lose purpose. You lose purpose. I want to give you six principles, I think, that, that contribute to this. And I will say this is spiritual sleepiness. Now, this is complacency, being comfortable, the familiarity, breeding contempt. All of this plays a part into these these six principles of spiritual sleepiness. Now, the first one is this. Spiritual sleepiness occurs when our outward circumstances are comfortable. We're not getting fed to lions. 
where we can go out and we can still tell people about Jesus in this country. Our outward circumstances, for the most part, are comfortable. The only circumstances that we can't control, um, like the ones that are beyond our control, the ones like your health, uh, you, you just get a diagnosis that overwhelms you, uh, a financial issue that, that was unforeseen or whatever the case may be, maybe a job loss, those outward circumstances can wake us up. Another thing about spiritual sleepiness is this. Spiritual sleepiness occurs when all is going well spiritually. That's when it occurs. Because if, if, you're, if, if God is showing you things and he's, he's moving in your spirit and you go through the word and you're like, oh, and he's challenging your beliefs and you're going back to it, in that you're going to be spiritually alert. But yet when things are going well spiritually and you get comfortable spiritually, then you're going to be spiritually sleepy and that will take you off purpose. The third one is this, spiritual sleepiness occurs when one has lost purpose. When, when a person is drifted, now they're just drifted away. Now, ultimately, they're not thinking about God near as much as what they used to. Instead, they're just thinking about themselves, their duty, their obligation, their task, their kids, their marriage, their house, their cars, themselves. Another one, spiritual sleepiness is occurring when there's a lack of feeling towards the things of God. Stop here for just a moment before I give you the last two. When... If in talks like this, that there's not something spiritually that's stirring in you, if you hear these things and you're indifferent to the Spirit of God, that says that there is a problem internally to you. That means that there's something that, that, that God is trying to, to teach you right now in this moment. So if you're indifferent and you're listening to what I have to say and you're like, yeah, I, don't, I just don't even know why I'm here yet. Or if you're thinking about your grocery list or thinking about because it's Father's Day, where are you going to go to to lunch today, or what you're going to do for dinner, or all the tasks. If you're indifferent to these things, and you have no feeling toward the things of God, this says something about your very soul. And you should, you should really seek God to say, do I even have faith at all? The fifth one is this. Spiritual sleepiness occurs when faith and everyday life are disconnected. So if you consider your faith as just what you do at 427 Oport Road, this address you are in a very desperate place. The last one, spiritual sleepiness is when one is near to the end of their journey. So if you've been a Christian for 20, 30 years, maybe you're just older, you're just up in years. Even in hearing this message, you're like, I've heard this message and this, you know, I heard a quote or, you know, it's just that, that is familiar to breeding contempt in your, in your heart right now. And this uh, idea of spiritual sleepiness, just being comfortable and all of this, it occurs when one is near to the end of their journey. Let me give us some biblical examples just so you see what I'm standing upon. Lot was not young when he got drunk. Abraham was not a young man when he lied. Jacob was not a young man when he cheated his brother. David was not a young man when he fornicated and plotted murder. And Peter was not a young man when he denied his Lord. They were all older comfortable, getting contemptual. Now, I want to land this talk with the latter two verses of this passage. I can just jump right into it because we've read it already. 
Then Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. I want to clarify something here. Do not be afraid. It means stop being fearful. It means stop being fearful. It doesn't mean don't get scared. There are going to be times where we get scared. He's saying stop being fearful. Stop having your, your life wrapped around what you can control. Just because you have the right type of personality that, that wants to control outcomes and you want everything to be predictable and you don't want to be caught off guard. Do not be afraid. It means stop being fearful. And what Jesus is pointing out to Peter, and I think really the biggest purpose of this, it wasn't, it wasn't the greatest, the greatest catch wasn't the fish. It was the disciples. It wasn't, oh my goodness, look at him. He, he, he took something in my context and he blew my mind and there was the wow and then there's the what. Instead, no, he says, no, no, look at the backside of this. This is the what because now it, when Jesus reaffirms it, says stop being fearful. Why? Because Peter would do incredible things for God. God would use him to lead the early church because these very people would take this message not to their brain. They would take it to heart. Their lives would be radically defined by what Jesus did. The reason why Christianity exists isn't because of a bunch of people gathered in a room. It was because a bunch of people gathered in a room and they saw the resurrected Jesus and they had no way of understanding or explaining it outside if it was the greatest miracle. And ultimately, these people would be the very people that every Protestant church would stand upon. Everyone stands upon these people. So when he says to Peter, stop being fearful, he not only is looking at the miracle that just happened, he's also looking at the potential that Peter has. For you and I, we have to stop saying what if and applying all these negative things to God or negative things to your purpose and saying, well, what if this happens? What if my kids do this? What if my marriage does this? What if my... Instead, we need to add what if questions that are good questions. Say, what if the promises of God are real? What if He is a God of hope? What if there is a power available to Christians that I'm not currently experiencing? What if He saved me not so I could have this, this individual walk with God, but He would be, he'd be bringing me into family? What if God's ability in me is greater than what I currently see? What if God can? And what if my life, spiritually speaking, relationally speaking, financially speaking, has been determined by what I can control. And what if, right now, today, in this moment, you realize it for the first time? And what if today could be the day that God would use to turn your life around? What if today's the day to where you realize that you're not a Christian at all? And you, you've been settling for the rules or duty or obligation. But what if what God's trying to do in you is to say, you are not a Christian at all. 
And those things were never supposed to be the way to be right with God the Father. And what if today is the day where you turn your life over to Jesus? There's a scripture in Romans 6.23 and it says, For the wages of sin is death. Wages, the, the punishment, the payment of your sins is death. Which means that if you are not walking with Jesus, if you, if you are not connected to Jesus, if you're not saved, if Jesus Christ is not your Lord and your Savior, that means you, in your own right, in accordance to what that passage says, for the wages of sin is death, that means that you, if you were to die today and you're separated from God, that means you will spend eternity in a real place, it's not myth, it's not legend, in a real place called hell, and it is a place of eternal torment. And what if that's true about you today? And what if you were to die today with the knowledge of that, but yet you didn't do anything with this knowledge? And yet what if you let this moment pass to where God's trying to reveal in you that you're not saved? And what if you let this moment pass? What if this is the last time that the Spirit of God speaks to you in this way? And what if this day and this moment and this time is the one that will be the determiner for the rest of your life, physically and spiritually? The rest of that verse, it says, for the wages of sin is death. But then as you continue in that passage, it says, but the free gift of life comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, this is the amazing thing. If our, if our, spiritually speaking, if our life is wrapped up in duty, obligation, and rules, ultimately what we're resting on is what we can control. So we, if we live our life that way, we're saying, I can control my, my own salvation. And if that's the rationale, what was the point of the cross in the first place? And if that was true, then there would be no purpose to what that scripture just said, that the gift of God comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. But what if you decided today, what if, if your response to what God's doing inside of you, what if your response is to say yes to Jesus? Finally say yes to Jesus.